Now today, friends, we come to Second Thessalonians, and I want to say several things by way of introduction for this very wonderful epistle that we have here. The second epistle, Paul wrote it shortly after he wrote the first epistle. And I do not know how wide the gap is there. Some think it's a matter of weeks, other of months, and some even a couple of years. But however long it was, why the Christians in Thessalonica were still young baby Christians, and the first letter that Paul wrote didn't answer all the questions. In fact, the matter is, it gave rise to further questions. And Paul here is attempting to answer these. And then there was circulating in the Thessalonian church a letter or a report that was purported to have come from Paul. And it was inclined to disturb the Christians. And the false report claimed that Christ had already come and had already gathered out the church to himself and that the world was then living in the judgments of the day of the Lord. Now, these people were being persecuted, as we saw in the last epistle. They were suffering for the gospel's sake, and it was very easy for them to believe that maybe they had entered the great tribulation period, and that actually not only the dead had missed the rapture, but All of the believers had missed it, and they were now in the great tribulation period. And then Paul writes this and attempts to clarify the matter that he had not written the other epistle, and that the day of the Lord could not come until certain things took place. In fact, he mentions two things that must take place, and therefore they could reasonably believe that they were not in the great tribulation period at all. Then he shows that the professing church, this outward organization, is going actually into total apostasy. The Lord Jesus made it clear. He says, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find the faith upon the earth? And the answer, the way the question is asked, is that he would not find the faith on the earth, that actually the church, that organization, would be in total apostasy. And the book of Revelation, of course, confirms that, that when the church is taken out, there at the beginning of the fourth chapter of Revelation, that you do not have anything but an empty shell of an organization that has a form of godliness but denies the power of it, and that it is the great harlot of the 17th chapter. And that's about as frightful a picture as you can find in the Word of God is that picture. Now, these people believe they were entering or entered the great tribulation period. Now, at different times in the history of the world, there have been those that it believed that they had entered the Great Tribulation period. Now, during World War II, during the Blitz in Britain, some of the British ministers who were conservative in their faith, they came to the conclusion that 
they had entered the great tribulation period and that the church was going through it. I have a very good friend. He's an English preacher, and he believes the church will go through the great tribulation. In fact, he believes we're in it. At least he did. I don't know whether he still believes it or not. But he and I were having lunch together with a mutual friend, a layman, who had taken us to lunch and had bought us a nice T-bone steak. And we were sitting there eating it, and he again insisted that the church was in the Great Tribulation today. We're in it. And to confirm his argument and to substantiate it, He said to me, he said, Now, McGee, if you had been in Great Britain during the Blitz, and night after night you'd gone down in the subway with your people, members of your church, and practically every night one person would have hysterics, total nervous breakdown, they'd have to take them next day to the country. And night after night you went through that. He says, You'd believe you're in the Great Tribulation period. And I said to him, I said, you know, if I had been in Great Britain in the Blitz as you were, I am convinced that I'd be just as human as you are, and I would have said, boy, this is it. We're in the Great Tribulation. But I said, if I had come up out of the subway, and one day the Americans arrived, and then Germany was bombed out, And I guess over there they thought they were in the Great Tribulation, too. And I said, then after that, I came to the United States, and I was having lunch with a couple of friends, and I was eating a T-bone steak. I think I'd pinch myself and ask myself, is this really the Great Tribulation period? And if it is, let's have some more tribulation, because... It'll mean more T-bone steaks. And he looked at me, he says, you're being ridiculous. And he said it in that British disdainful voice, you know. You're being ridiculous. Well, I told him, and I didn't think I was being ridiculous. I thought he was. Now, I do not believe that the church goes through the Great Tribulation, and I think this epistle is going to make it perfectly clear that the church does not go through the Great Tribulation period. That is going to be the theme here. You see, the first epistle emphasized, actually, the return of Christ for his church, and that we call the rapture. Now, this epistle emphasizes the return of Christ to the earth and the setting up of his kingdom here upon this earth. And we come with him at that time. And that's called the revelation. And the emphasis in this epistle is upon that. You see, in the rapture, the emphasis is not his coming to earth because he doesn't come to earth. makes it clear he doesn't. The emphasis is upon we shall be caught up. Harpazo. We shall be raptured. And that's the rapture of the church. It says so. It's very clear. Now, here he returns to the earth to set up his kingdom here upon this earth. Now, the gap between those two events is the great tribulation period. And we've had occasion, as we did last few times, to emphasize the rapture 
and in relation to the great tribulation period and the day of the Lord. Now, the rapture is not a subject in the Old Testament at all. It's not there. It's not taught. The hope in the Old Testament was an earthly hope that these people would establish a kingdom here upon this earth and heaven would come down to earth. Now, I'm just a poor, simple preacher here in Southern California, and all the kingdom of heaven means to me is the reign of the heavens over the earth. Now, some of these theologians today, they've really got it complicated, so complicated that I wonder sometimes what they're really trying to do, trying maybe to sustain some kind of a theory. But the reign of the heavens over the earth, because this earth is going to become a heaven someday. But we have been told, our Lord said it, and that is one of the great themes of the epistles. Paul says it, Peter says it, James says it, John says it, that we're going to be caught up and we're going to meet the Lord in there. We're going to be with him forever, as he himself said. But that's not a subject of the Old Testament. Now, the day of the Lord, as we've already seen, is quite a subject, and we're going to be dealing with that. And so this expression, the day of the Lord, we'll be looking at that when we get to the second chapter. Now, you have in chapter 1 here the persecution of believers now and the judgment of unbelievers hereafter, that is, at the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, we have in chapter 2 the program for the world in connection with the coming of Christ. And then in chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, we have the practicality of the coming of Christ. And in that, we see that believers should be established in the Word. They should be established in their walk. They should be established in their work for the Lord. There's no truth as practical as the great truth of eschatology, the program of God for the future. There's nothing that should affect the life like that. And you couldn't believe it without it affecting your life. And I think it's the great truth that probably is needed today and needed very definitely, by the way. Now let's get into this first chapter here. The persecution of believers now, which is not the great tribulation, and the judgment of unbelievers hereafter, that is, at the coming of Christ. We find here that in verses 1 and 2 we have the introduction, and then in verses 3 through 7 we have the persecution of believers and the fruits of it. And then we have, in verses 8 through 12, judgment of wicked at the coming of Christ. And, of course, that judgment is not finalized until the great white throne, because all of the wicked are to be gathered for that final assize before God. Now, will you notice the introduction here, and I'm reading, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, here we have a tremendous statement that Paul makes. And I'd like to follow through with it because of the importance of it. The greeting of Paul here is his usual friendly greeting to a church that is theologically and spiritually sound. And he puts with him Silas and Timothy. These men together had endured a great deal. Paul and Silas, you remember, were in the prison at Philippi. And Paul and Silas and Timothy had gone down to Thessalonica. And when Paul had to leave there, he left Silas and Timothy and waited for them in Athens, and they didn't come. And he went on to Corinth, and they finally arrived there. That's when he wrote his first epistle to answer some questions that had arisen. Now we find Paul here writing this second epistle, and he identifies these two co-workers, the brethren, with him. Paul didn't mind doing that. He would identify himself with men that for us today would be totally unknown had not Paul included them in these epistles. And it reveals, I think, something of the character of Paul the Apostle. A man who had been a proud young Pharisee becomes now a humble follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and a servant of his and an apostle of his. Now, he says to the church of the Thessalonians. Well, that's the local church. It's in Thessalonica. Paul believed in the local church. And that church that's in Thessalonica is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I take it that he didn't say in the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was in the church in Thessalonica indwelling believers. And that was for the purpose of them manifesting the life of Christ down here to walk worthy of the high calling of God. But their position is that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, friends, that Paul taught the deity of Christ. There was no question in his mind who the Lord Jesus Christ was. He's God. Now, the church is in both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember the Lord Jesus put it like that, that his sheep followed him. He knew them. He gave them eternal life. They shall never perish. And he says, no one can pluck them out of my hand. And the Father that gave them me, he's greater than all. And no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. You have the two hands of deity there, the Lord Jesus and God the Father. Now, that is where the church is positionally today. And it was at Thessalonica, but it was in Christ Jesus. Now, the important thing is not the name of your church or the name of your local church. The important thing is that you and the other believers are in Christ Jesus. And then the local church becomes very important if, They are in Christ Jesus, and the Holy Spirit therefore indwells them. Then they can manifest in the neighborhood and in the community and in the town and in their section of the city and in the world, the life of God, my beloved. 
That is what Paul actually is saying in this very lovely introduction. Now, he uses the same introduction that he uses in most of his epistles. This is his formula. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the two high words of the gospel today. Grace comes first. If you have experienced the grace of God, that means you've been saved, for it's by grace are we saved. And you have come as a lost sinner, bringing nothing to God and receiving everything from Him. Then you've experienced the grace of God. He offers you salvation. The gift of God is eternal life. And you can't work for a gift. If you do, it ceases to be a gift, and it's something you work for. It's a payment. And salvation, God is not patting you on the back because you're a nice little Sunday school boy. God is offering you a lost, hell-doomed sinner, a salvation, if you trust him, and that's grace. Grace under you, and if you've experienced that, then you know something of the peace of God, what it is to put your head on the pillow at night and rejoice in a salvation like this. And this word peace is the softest pillow that there is to sleep on at night. It's the peace that comes when you know your sins are forgiven you. And this comes not because of some psychological gyration that you go through down here or because you've been to a psychiatrist. It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's supernatural, my friend. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. That's it. And you can have it because it's the gift of God and it's given to sinners. And if you come under that classification, and I'm of the opinion that you do, then it's for you. Now, that's the introduction. Isn't that a lovely introduction? Now, he begins to talk here about the persecution of believers and the fruits of it. He says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. And now, in verse 4, he's going to talk about your patience and faith. Now, here we have it again, that little trinity that Paul uses, faith and love and patience, abstract terms, but you have to get them out of the abstract down in the concrete, get them walking on the sidewalks today, and it's the work of faith. Saving faith produces works. And love is manifested to God's children today, and you're going to love the brethren. You're going to have to love me whether you want to or not. You're a child of God, and I'm going to have to love you too. And it makes a wonderful arrangement. And then there is the patience. And this is a patience. Maybe it's not a patience of waiting in a traffic jam or waiting for a light to change at a corner. But it's a patience that today is willing to live for God, knowing that all things do work together for good and that we have that far-off vision, that far-off goal 
that someday we're coming in his presence. And that enables you to get over the bad street. We're going to look now at the suffering this church had gone through. And it's like traveling over a highway. And this was true years ago when I used to cross the country from Texas to California. Be many places in the road, it'd say detour. And you get on that detour, then it'd be a sign up. It says five more miles of the detour are five miles to the double highway. And you know, it always made that rough road a little bit smoother to know that out yonder you're going to hit a good highway. You're going to hit the asphalt or the concrete out yonder. And in view of that, well, you could go over that detour. And many of us today are really on a detour. Road's rough, and we're called upon to suffer. Well, if you've got a good view, it's the patience of hope. And that hope looks way down yonder, and there's a good, smooth road coming up, friends. It's way down there, but it's coming up. And say it may be closer than many of us think today. Now we're going to see the main thing that persecution does. You see, for believers, it's a discipline. God disciplines his children. He punishes the wicked. And that's the difference, by the way. He attempts to rehabilitate his children. He wants to have the lost born again, reborn, if you please. They are to be recycled. We are born into the world's sinners. Now he wants to recycle us. I noticed the advertisement of a bottling company. They say the bottle you drink out of today is maybe the one you drank out of last month. They take it back, recycle it, make a new bottle. Well, now God is taking old bottles, old empty bottles, throwaways, and he recycles them and makes them new. And the judgment of those that refuse that type of thing, you see. Now, as we come back here to verse 3 again, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because are, as it is right for us to do that, it's fitting for us, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all toward each other abounded. You can't grow in the grace of God. You see, you can't grow toward him without growing outward toward your brother. You grow to God in grace and knowledge, faith. And you grow to your brother in love. Now, all of this does what? He has to send us a little trouble because that is a discipline that produces in our life a patience that enables us to look down into the future in hope. Verse 4 now, "...so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations or afflictions that ye endure." You see, the church will not go through the great tribulation... But we're going through the little tribulation. We're going to have a little trouble down here. And if you're not Christian friend, there must be something radically wrong with you, you see. And this word here that has to do with patience, your patience, that's an interesting word here. 
Actually, it means to stand in under, to be placed in under. Great many people try to get out from and under their problems, their difficulties. Well, the person who's patient, he is able to stay under, and he keeps carrying that load. He doesn't throw it off, doesn't get rid of his responsibility. And these Thessalonian Christians, they had a real testimony in the Roman world of that day. They were in a Roman colony, and there was going to and fro out of that colony all the time, and word got out everywhere. And therefore, they were enduring, actually, a great deal of trouble. They had persecutions and afflictions, and this was something that was not strange. The Word of God makes it clear, Christian friend, you're going to have a little trouble down here. Peter, in his first epistle, fourth chapter, expressed it like this, verse 12, "...beloved." Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Have you ever heard a Christian say, Oh, I don't know why God let this happen to me. Nobody's ever had to go through with it. My friend, I don't know what you're going through, but whatever you're going through, you're not the only one. You have company because it's not a strange thing. And in view of that, verse 13, "...but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy." And he says, "...now we are not to suffer," verse 15, "...as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters." Now, a great many Christians are in hot water constantly because they talk too much. They talk about others, and they get in trouble. Or they actually are dishonest, and they're in trouble, and they complain about it. Well, friend, if you suffer like that, there's no advantage in discipline of your life and developing patience. You're just getting what's coming to you. Now, he says, though, verse 16, "...yet if any man suffer..." As a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And here in verse 16 of 1 Peter 4 is where I've just read. And therefore, we are to recognize that we are being disciplined. God will punish the wicked. And again, I need to repeat this, that today our judges, and I tell you, friends, the lawlessness in this nation is frightening. In fact, everybody's got frightened. They're going to have to do something about it, you see. You can't rehabilitate criminals. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's some that you can help. I think these first offenders that got with the wrong crowd, they can be helped, of course. But these hardened criminals today, there should not be a program to rehabilitate them, and in six months turn them out on society. Because I tell you, they should be punished. And it should be very clear, they're being put in prison to be punished, and they should be kept there. And that's the reason that I have believed all along, that it's the teaching of the Word of God, that capital punishment is a deterrent to crime. And right now, the liberals are not so eloquent as they were some time ago. In fact, the matter is, it's rather amazing now to hear 
on the television some of these liberal boys talking about we must have law and order. Well, that was really, that was kaput a few years ago or a few months ago. But it's coming back in style today. There should be punishment. I'm saying all of this because God disciplines his children for their development, for their growth, that they might have patience and a hope for the future. You don't need to get too comfortable down here. If you do, you wouldn't be looking for the Lord to come. Now he goes on to say here in verse 5, "...which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God." for which ye also suffer. Now, that hasn't anything to do with your salvation, but it sure prepares you for your eternal state, my friend. You and I today are going to look back, and maybe some of us will wish we had a little bit more discipline than we got. That is for the present. Now, there's coming up the punishment of the wicked. Listen to him as he begins, actually, in verse 6. However, I have put it in my notes, the judgment of the wicked at the coming of Christ, beginning at verse 8. But this is preparation. Verse 6, seeing it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And when God judges today, God is righteous in it. And Paul asks the question, is there unrighteousness with God? And the answer is, let it not be. God forbid. I don't care what God does. It's right. He can't do wrong. He does right. And we complain because we actually are ignorant. We do not understand why God does a certain thing. And he does it for a very definite purpose. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, the Lord Jesus is coming in judgment. And here it begins in verse 8, and here it is. I'll just have to read it to you. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, I want to say some things right at this particular spot. The Word of God actually says very little about heaven. And one of the reasons is it's so wonderful that we could not comprehend it. And the Lord does not want us to get so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Therefore, he wants us to keep our eyes down here on our walk, our pathway, and I'm not sure to keep our nose on the grindstone quite a bit of the time. Now, Scripture not only says very little about heaven, it says less about the condition of the lost. It's so awful that the Holy Spirit has drawn a veil over it, and there's nothing there to satisfy the morbid curiosity, are the lust for revenge. Because, you see, when God judges, God does not do it in a vindictive manner. He does it to vindicate. 
you see, his righteousness and his holiness. But there's nothing in the Scripture to satisfy the lust, but there's enough there that it ought to give you a warning. It does not mean that it's less real, because so little is said. Actually, Christ said more about hell than anyone else. Hell's an awful reality, and I'm not going to speculate on it. I'm just going to give what is said right here. It's bad enough. He's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power? When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now, hell's ridiculed today, and that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It was also, not too many years ago, it was a popular notion that Hitler would not plunge Europe into a war and make a holocaust of the whole thing and turn Europe into a flaming fire. But he did. Oh, the dreamers. The man that took the umbrella and went over to meet with Hitler and Mussolini. And he came back and said, we'll have peace in our time. Well, we didn't and we don't today. There were many that thought that Japan would not attack America. Now, it's not popular for me to say this right now, but our government at that time didn't believe they would. And the liberal churches at that time were teaching pacifism, if you please. Now, whether they believed it or not, there was a Pearl Harbor. My friend, there is a hell. And Christ is coming to this earth someday. First, he's going to take his own out of the earth, as we'll see next time. But he's coming, and it will be a terror to the wicked. It will be a judgment. Those that know not God, it's life eternal to know him, and who obey not the gospel. That is the thing here. This is the work of God. You want to work for your salvation? This is the work of God that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Word of God says. Now, you can make it look very nice today. And I would like to say this. I hear a great many testimonies today. I have a book that someone sent me, and I returned it because of the fact it was filled with I, I, I. Nothing very much about the Lord Jesus other than this man. He got rich. He had a good personality. He saved his home. Everything. Oh, it was just wonderful. And it was. But there's nothing in his testimony, and there's nothing in the average testimony I hear today of a person who says, I was a hell-doomed sinner going straight to hell. I was lost. And he saved me. My friend, that's the important thing to say in your testimony. Not what he's done for you today in the gimme, gimme side. What did he deliver you from? That's the reason that he came. He came to redeem us, friends. Not to give you a new personality and make you a successful businessman. He came to deliver you 
from hell, my friend. Now, that's not popular today. People don't like that. But a lot of folk don't like to be told they had cancer. Dear lady, would not go to the doctor. She knew she had cancer because the first time she went, he said she did. She would not go back. She insisted it was something else. No use me telling you, they buried it. He's been buried now for a long time. She had cancer. And the doctor told her the truth. But she was not prepared to see it. And today, there's too few that are telling folk this, that you are lost. Now, may I say to you, if somebody came, you were out yonder in a burning building, and a man came in there, when you were asleep, he waked you up, and he shocked you, and he picked you up, and he carried you out of that burning building, and he liked you, and he's a rich man. He made you his son, brought you into his home, a lovely home, and then made over to you so many wonderful things. Now, what would you, if you got up before a group of people to thank him, what would you thank him for? Would you thank him for the fact he'd made you his son? I hope you would. That'd be good. But what would you really thank him for? Wouldn't you really thank him because... He rescued you out of that burning building. Now, here, the judgment of the wicked is coming. Now, if you want to stay in that class, you're going to be judged. Somebody ought to tell you that. And I'm going to tell you that. Now, will you notice what he says here? Verse 11, Wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Now, he does want to do good things for you today, but he saved you from something. That's important. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if God has prospered you, made you a successful businessman, and you can get up and glorify Christ, fine. But what about these poor saints? I have a letter of a woman that's right here in Los Angeles in a hospital and been there flat of her back for most of her life and has a radiant testimony. I'll be honest with you, my friend. It's nice to get up before a comfortable group after you've had a banquet in this affluent society and brag about how God has blessed you. What about that woman lying on that bed? She has a radiant testimony. I say to you, she's glorifying God. I'm not quite sure about you, brother. I'm not quite sure about you and about me today, whether we glorify him when we boast of the fact that he's so blessed us today, and he has, but he's also delivered us from hell. That doesn't sound good today, does it? But that happens to be what the Word of God says, and it says it right here. Now, friends, we come here to another one of the great prophetic chapters in the Word of God. Back in 1 Thessalonians, we called attention to the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 13. That has to do with the rapture of the church, and also it had to do with the day of the Lord, too. 
and the great tribulation and the coming of Christ and glory to the earth. You'll find all of that in First Thessalonians in the entire epistle. Now, in this epistle, in chapter 2 here, the emphasis is going to be actually on the great tribulation period. But we also are going to find one of the finest passages, I think, on the rapture of the church. Now, back in verse 10 of chapter 1 here of Second Thessalonians, and I went over this rather hurriedly, "...when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day." Now, I believe that has reference to his coming to the earth. Now, when he comes in the rapture, actually what happens is the church is caught up. The believers living and dead are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, they don't come on to the earth then. They go back to the place where the Lord Jesus has prepared for the church. He says that I'm going to take you to be with me. Now, the world enters the great tribulation. At the end of that period, he comes in glory and judgment to the earth. Now, at the rapture, he does not judge the earth at all. First Thessalonians 4 made it clear. The Lord, in the 14th chapter of John, made it clear. And Paul again and again, and I think you have it in the message to the churches in Revelation. He's not coming to the earth in judgment at that time, but... He comes at the end of the great tribulation period. And this chapter now makes that clear. So that what you have in verse 10 there is now the mention of his coming to the earth. Because we saw last time he's coming in judgment. And the great subject of hell came before us. And we dealt with that. Now, we deal here in chapter 2, and I begin... He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now the reference here is to our gathering together unto him. And this aspect of the coming is the rapture of the church. The emphasis here is upon our gathering together to him. There's not judgment at that time. Now the reason he mentions that is, verse 2, "...that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand." Now, if you consult any good Bible with notes, you will find a note at the side, even if it's not already the change made, it's not the day of Christ, but it's the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, we've already dealt with that. The day of the Lord has no reference to the church. The thing that happens at the rapture, the day of Christ, or the age of grace, ends. That is, the calling out of the church. And the church is caught up to meeting. Now, there begins the day of the Lord. And we've seen that's a subject of the Old Testament, whereas the rapture is not. And what happens is it begins with night. The day of the Lord, Joel says, is not light, it's darkness. It's a time of judgment. And it opens like that because the Hebrew day 
And in Genesis 1, the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, evidently, someone had circulated a letter or an oral word, nor by word or by letter, or somebody said they had a communication from the Lord, especially. It's interesting. We've always had a group of people that seem to get direct information from the Lord. May I say they don't study the Word of God. They want to get it direct. It's much easier just to have a telephone conversation and get it that way rather than go to school or take up the Bible and study it. So there was circulating in Thessalonica a word that had come to them. And there was some saying that it was a special revelation, something Brother Paul didn't tell you. That's always interesting. These super-duper saints get something that nobody else gets. And there were those there, nor by word, that is, this was a word of mouth, nor by letter, and apparently was a spurious letter circulating, or at least somebody said they had it, and I have a notion no one had really seen it, that it was from us, that is, from Paul and Timothy and Silas, as that the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, this had caused a problem with the Thessalonian believers, and you can see why. They were in persecution. They were having trouble. And it was very easy for somebody to say, well, this is the great tribulation period that you're in. The day of the Lord has come, and we're already in it. Now, the Word of God mentions the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, it begins, friends, with judgment. And that's the reason I think that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he quoted from Joel. And he says, this is that. He says to those that were listening, they knew that there was a day coming in the future when the Spirit of God would be poured out. But it was going to be the day of the Lord. In verse 20 of Acts 2, he says, At that time the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And certainly that hadn't happened at Pentecost. At the crucifixion of Christ... Why, there had been an earthquake, and there was darkness. But now, on the day of Pentecost, there was nothing like that at all. There was a rushing sound like a mighty wind, and it sat upon them as fire. There was no wind, but it sounded like a hurricane that had hit the town. And it caused everybody to rush up to the temple area to see what had happened. Now, Peter calls that, quoting Joel, that's the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, begins like that. And all that Peter is saying is that this is that. This is similar to that. You think these men are drunk? Well, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is a day coming. The Orthodox Jew in that day believed there was a day coming when God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And on the day of Pentecost, wasn't poured out on all flesh, I think that ought to be obvious to anyone. Then we find that Peter mentions the day of the Lord, Second Peter 3.10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And we saw that in First Thessalonians 5, that he'll not come as a thief in the night. 
He says he won't come as a thief in the night to believers. Therefore, we are to stay awake. This is not the time to sleep because he will come to a sleepy world like that in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now, that has not happened, did not happen on the day of Pentecost. Let me give one other reference to this. It's in Revelation 6, verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, that's not for the church. The church is to look for him, a person to come. We're identified with him. Now, Paul goes on in verse 3, and will you follow me very carefully? Let no man deceive you by any means. And let's don't be deceived today. Let's listen to Paul. For that day shall not come. What day? The day of the Lord. Not the rapture, but the day of the Lord shall not come except there come a falling away first, that's number one, and the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now you have these two here. You have two things that have to take place before the day of the Lord can begin, and neither one of them has taken place yet. The first one that will take place, there must come a falling away first. Now, there have been those that look at this as the apostasy. And the very interesting thing is that I think it refers to that, but it means more than that because the word means more than that. This falling away first, it's the translation of apostasia. And that comes from a root word, apostasis, which actually means departure or removal from. And the verb means to remove. There must come a removing. Now, there are two kinds of removings that are going to take place. One is they will depart from the faith. Now, that's apostasy. But that can't take place until the true church is removed because there will be total apostasy when the Lord comes. Because he says, when the Son of Man comes, and that means to the earth, will he find the faith, that is, the body of truth that he left here? No, the answer is no, he won't find it. There will be total apostasy. Why? Because of two things. The organization has departed from the faith. It's apostatized. But there's been another departure, and that is the departure of the true church. The departure of the true church leads to the other, you see. Now, in other words, the day of the Lord can't come, and that also means that the great tribulation can't begin, the man of sin can't appear, until what? Until there is the departure, the removal of the church, the departure of the church from the earth. And... This is what he's already enlarged upon in the first epistle. He's not going over here because here he's emphasizing the day of the Lord. And he's already told them about the departure. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven, shout, voice of archangel, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then those that are alive, this is for those that are in Christ, that's the church caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that's a departure. That's what he's talking about. 
Now, some are going to depart from the faith. Their organization is left down here. And we see it as a great harlot in the 17th chapter of Revelation. And it gets worse. The organization does. The Laodicean church is in sad condition. I think we're in that particular period today. Now, it will finally end in total apostasy. Now, we find here the departure of the church from the earth. Now, from the viewpoint of the earth, it's a departure. From the viewpoint of heaven, it's a rapture, you see, caught up. You're looking at it from heaven when you say that, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Here, you're looking at it from the earth. Now, I think the world's going to say at that time, boy, they're gone. That fellow McGee that is on radio that was such a nuisance, he's gone. He's departed. He's left. And I'm going to say hallelujah. But the world will rejoice. But it's going to be a sad day for the earth. They think they're entering the millennium and they're entering the great tribulation period. And it's going to be rough on them. They won't know what it is, but it's going to be rough. The church will have gone. I think it'll be a sad day. May I illustrate what I'm talking about here? Some time ago, Miss McGee and I were at the Los Angeles airport a little early. We were taking a morning flight to Florida at that time. And we were waiting. We always get there early, generally have breakfast. And so I was walking around in that particular area, and there's a great big 747 plane that was getting ready to go to the Hawaiian Islands. And I'd love to have gotten on that one too, by the way, but you can't go on two planes at the same time. But the thing that interests me is I walked into that area where they were waiting to board the plane. There sat there a young soldier boy, fine-looking young fellow, and by him, the prettiest little girl you've ever seen, and they had a little baby that was just out of this world. And I thought, what a fine-looking family it was. But they were sad-looking. They weren't saying anything. All sitting there, and the little fellow, he was just having the biggest time, though, just gurgling and carrying on. But in a few moments, why, the plane was called, and they stood up, this couple, and this soldier boy, great big fella, just put his arms around that little wife and that baby, and they all began to weep, that is, except the baby, and he's just laughing like mad, but these two are just weeping, you know. He's going back, apparently, going back to some foreign soil, and so he went and picked up that bag he had and walked out through the gate and disappeared, but he turned around and waved at her. And she stood there and tears coming down her eyes. And she went over and watched the plane as it pulled out and then as it took off. And then I watched her holding that little baby walking away. It had been a departure. It was an apostasia. That's what it was, an apostasia. Histomy means to stand, apo to stand away from. And it means literally to remove. He'd removed himself. At least the government had removed him. The Marine Corps had. And he's gone. That plane took off. And I saw her gather up that little fella and walk down, you know, and get on the escalator, going out probably to get in a car and leave. My heart went out to her. It's going to be hard for her, friends. It's going to be hard for her. 
But the world, you know, is going to rejoice when the church leaves, but it's going to be rough. They're going to enter the great tribulation period. And Paul says here, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. There'll be an apostasy of the church. But the true church is going to leave, you see. The true church, you can't have a total apostasy as long as there are believers down here. And the liberals would like to get rid of us. They are one of these days. And then the second thing, that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. When he's revealed, you're in the great tribulation period. Now, he's called here the man of sin. He's called the Antichrist by John. John's the only one who uses that term, by the way. He has about 30 different titles in the Bible. He's a subject of the Old Testament. He is going to be Satan's man. I'm going to talk about this when we get to 1 John and Revelation in detail. But let me say here, this is the man that first will put the Roman Empire back together again. And then he's going to become, finally, a world dictator. And he's going to deceive the world. But he can't appear that is in power. He could be in our midst today, but he won't be able to come to power and reveal who he is until you get in the great tribulation period. Now we are told concerning him, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that's called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is as God, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, one of the things that he's going to claim, of course, is that he is God. Now, we'll have to hold this till we get to the 13th chapter of Revelation. But there we find that the beast out of the sea, that's going to be the Antichrist heading up first, bringing together Western Europe as we know it today. And he'll put it back together again. And when he does, he's going to show himself as God. And the world will think he's Christ. I think that's the big lie here. Now he says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Paul didn't mind talking about these things. And they say, Oh, preacher shouldn't dwell on these things. Well, Paul did. Paul says, when I was with you, I told you about them. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. Well, what can withhold evil in the world? Well, the only one I know of is the Holy Spirit. Actually, government can't do it today. They're not doing it. The Roman Empire actually didn't do it. They were an evil force themselves. Now he goes on to say in verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity, and that is lawlessness. And believe me, we got that today, and I think it'll increase. But this is the period, believe me, it's going to break out. For the mystery of lawlessness doth already work. Only he who now hinders will hinder until he be taken out of the way. Now, when's he taken out? He'll be taken out with the church. Now, somebody says, won't the Holy Spirit be in the world during the Great Tribulation? Yes. Wasn't he in the world before Pentecost? He sure was. He's back in the Old Testament, but on a different mission. Now, he'll be on a different mission after the church is removed because the Spirit of God's going to present us. And we're sealed until the day of redemption. He has to deliver us to the Lord Jesus. If he didn't, we wouldn't make it. And he'll deliver us. And when he does... 
Then he comes back to the earth, I think, to resume his former mission down here and former office. But he won't hinder evil. <laughs> He's going to let the devil have it for a while. And believe me, I don't want to be here when the devil has it. It looks like he's got it today, and that to me is bad enough. I don't want to be here when it's turned over to him. Now, the mystery of lawlessness began to work or was working in Paul's day. It continues to work. You remember the Lord Jesus gave the parable that the kingdom of heaven condition today, and he's not speaking of the church. Actually, he's speaking of the turn the kingdom of heaven took. It's a field today where the word of God is being sown. And that is a kingdom of heaven condition. But an enemy has come in and sown tares. And the tares and wheat are growing together. The word of God and lawlessness grow together. And the world's getting worse and the world's getting better, actually. I think the word of God's going out more today than it ever has in the history of the world. I think radio has been one of the mean. Television, maybe not as much, but radio today is really reaching out to the ends of the earth. My friend, we could take giant steps today if we just had the support of God's people who really want to see the Word of God given out. Doors are open. So the Word is growing. The wheat's growing today. But also the tares are. Lawlessness will continue to get worse and worse. But the Holy Spirit won't let him go all the way in this age. After the Holy Spirit's removed, it's like taking the stopper out of a bottle. I tell you, then the liquid will pour all over, lawlessness will pour all over the world in that day. And we're told, and then shall that wicked one or lawless one be revealed. That's Antichrist, or yes, about 30 different aliases in the Word of God. The wicked one will be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. That is, that goes out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. What is it? It's his word. You see, the word of God created this universe. All God had to do was speak. God said, let there be light. You know what light is? It's the word of God. And today we have the written Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. Not that the written Word's not living. And that's the reason it's so potent. And then when he comes, he's coming as the Word of God. He'll consume them with the spirit of his mouth. He shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The epiphane, the shining forth of his coming. Now, when he came to Bethlehem, that was an epiphany. Paul says, "...the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men." That was the gracious appearing of his coming. They talk today about some of us believe in a second and third coming of Christ. We believe in more than that, friends. He came 1,900 years ago. Epiphany, the epiphany. He came through... As George McDonough put it, he came a little baby thing that made a woman cry. Came and tabernacled in human flesh. Then he's going to come and take his church out of the world. And then he's going to come to the earth and establish his kingdom. And so that's three comings, if you want to look at it like that. And actually, his first coming was mixed up in two comings. He was born in Bethlehem, then you don't hear from him again Till he's 30 years of age and he breaks out 
and begins his ministry. You have a first coming there and a second coming, a little baby. And then a man 30 years old, he walked into the temple and cleansed it. So all this nonsense today about, oh, you believe in a third coming of Christ. I can work in about four of them if you want me to. Nothing wrong with it. It's scriptural, by the way. Now he says here in verse 9, even his whose coming is after the working of Satan. This is Antichrist, Satan's man. The man is sin, the lawless one. And he will come after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now, power here is dunamis. That's physical power whose source is supernatural. That means that he's going to be quite a healer, I think. He'll do a lot of things. He'll perform miracles. He'll be a miracle worker, you see. I think he'll be able to walk on water. I think he might be able to control the wind. Satan at one time let a wind, you know, destroy the sons and daughters of Job. And then with signs. Now, the word signs means they're tokens. In other words, the purpose of which is to appeal to the understanding. This is going to appeal to the scientific world of that day. It'll appeal to politicians. It'll appeal to the religious world. And the phoniest kinds of things today, people are just taken in by it. I'm amazed how people will fall for that which is phony. And somebody said to me, why do you think that's true? Well, it can be expressed like this. Those who do not stand for something will fall for anything. And there are people today that are not rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And he's going to talk about that, by the way. Then lying wonders. That produces an effect upon observance. These lying wonders, people all over the world, my, they're going to talk about it. They said, my, this fellow, the world ruler day, he's a great fellow. Look what he can do. Now, who is it falls for him? Those who would not believe the gospel... And he'll do it with all deceivableness, verse 10 now, of unrighteousness in them that perish. Why? Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, I do believe that the gospel is going to go out to the ends of the earth, even maybe by the church. And I'm not sure by what it's penetrating pretty well today, as I said, by radio. Radio is going lots farther today to get the Word of God out. I believe that's our business. The Lord Jesus, then, is going to let the world believe a lie. And we're told here, verse 11, "...for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie." And why does he do that? Isn't that a little unfair? Oh, no, no. It's just like it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If you think that means that poor old Pharaoh wanted to let the children of Israel go and he was weeping and God really wouldn't let him, you're wrong. He didn't want to let them go. And what God did, he made him stand to it and he made him take a decision. You see, a lot of people are pussyfooting today. They won't take a stand for God. They won't listen to the gospel. They're closed to it. Now, God is going to give them, and he's giving them the Word of God. And after they hear the Word of God, and they won't accept it, then God will send them strong delusion. Why? Because they wouldn't receive the truth, then they'll believe a lie. 
and the people that are wide open today to the cults and the isms are people who've heard the gospel or church members. That's the reason some of them go around on Sunday morning and knock on your door, because they know the weak saints will not be in a house of worship. They know that they are the weak ones. They don't want to study the Word of God. And as a result, they know they can get them. If you won't receive the truth, you're wide open for anything that comes along. And I've been amazed at some intelligent people that'll sit in a church, hear the gospel, reject it, and then turn up the next thing you know, following the wildest cult or some individual that's as phony as all get out and not giving out the Word of God at all. Why? Because this is the way that it is. God does that to separate sheep from goats. That's the best way in the world to do it. They wouldn't receive the love of the truth. And now he sends them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now, what is the lie? Well, I think Antichrist is going to say to them, you people were really smart not becoming a bunch of religious nuts and believing in Jesus who was going to come and take you out of this world. These people that They took off probably on a trip to the moon, and they've disappeared, and they're out there in space somewhere, and they don't know where they're going. I think you'll come up with quite a few explanations of it. And you people were smart to wait, because we're going to build a kingdom right here on this earth, and the people are going to believe it. And they think they're entering the millennium, but they're entering the great tribulation. I think that's the lie. And... Why? In order that he can judge them, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And I've said this many times to my congregation, and I'd like to say it to this radio audience. If you can sit and listen to this program and continue to reject Jesus Christ, may I say this to you, that you are wide open for any thing that comes along, and you would never be able to go into the presence of God and say, well, I never heard the gospel before, because, my brother, you are hearing it, and you have heard it, and you probably heard it in several different places, and you turn your back upon it, and when you turn your back upon it, you're wide open, and you are a subject of judgment then for sure. Because we are savor of life to those that are saved. We are savor of death unto those that perish. Oh, I'm not your friend if you reject Jesus Christ, because you couldn't go into God's presence and say you hadn't heard it. And that's the thing I've always wanted to tell the man that rejects Christ. Brother, you are really, I've really put you out on a limb. You could never say you never heard it before. Now, Paul here beginning with verse 13, he begins the practical side of this epistle, the practicality of the coming of Christ. What does it really mean for us today? Well, in light of the knowledge of future events, the believer should live a life that demonstrates that he believes in the coming of Christ. Believing in the coming of Christ doesn't mean to run out and look up in the sky and say, oh, I wish Jesus would come. That's just pious nonsense. May I say to you, it's going to manifest itself in several different ways. In view of that, believers should be established in the Word of God. 
And then believers should be established in their walk down here. And then believers should be established in their work in all three of these. Now, will you notice as we move down here at verse 13, verse 13 now of Second Thessalonians 2, "...but we are bound to give thanks all way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth." And I'm going to read verse 14 also, "...whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus." Now, I believe that these two verses here give you the total spectrum of salvation. In other words, they give you salvation from Dan to Beersheba, all the way from the past through the present to the future. You have it all given to you here. Now you have, first of all, you're chosen to salvation. I'd like, by the way, to give you a verse that goes along with this. It's over in the 8th chapter of Romans, and there it's put in a very doctrinal sort of way. It begins by him saying in verse 28, in Romans 8 now, "...and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose." Dr. R. A. Tari used to say that this verse was a soft pillow for a tired heart, and it surely is. Now, verse 29, "...for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called." Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, we begin here with the first statement back in Second Thessalonians now, verse 13. He says here that you were chosen from the beginning. You were chosen to salvation. Now, that looks back to the past. And all I know is what it says, and I believe it. You mean to tell me that God chose you before you even got here? Well, Spurgeon used to put it like this. He said, I'm glad God chose me before I got here, because if he'd have waited till I got here, he never would have chosen me. Well, that makes sense. It simply means, friends, that you do not surprise God when you trust Christ. But we also need to let you see the other side of the corn. Whosoever will may come. And as another one has put it, the chosen are the whosoever will. And the non-elect are the whosoever wants. That's the way that it is. Whosoever will may come. If any man thirsts, that's a legitimate, that's a sincere, that is a definite offer without any complication to salvation. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And the reason you're not coming is not because you're not elected. The reason is you're not thirsty. You don't think you need a Savior. So, chosen 
to salvation. That's here. That looks back to the past. Now, sanctification of the Spirit. And we said that when sanctification is used in connection with the Holy Spirit, it's practical. When it's connected with Christ, it is positional. So, sanctification of the Spirit here means that he wants you to grow in grace down here. He wants you to grow. And then belief of the truth. That means that you are going to study the Word of God. Belief of the truth. That's the way that you're going to grow. That's the way you're going to develop. And then he goes on here to speak to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this refers to the rapture. Because, beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. My, that's a glorious, wonderful statement, is it not? And then we have a statement in Colossians 1.27 that says, "...to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." And that looks to the future so that you have the total spectrum of salvation here. I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved." Now, what is it that enables a believer to grow? It's the Word of God. Verse 15, "...therefore, brethren, stand fast, and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle." And Paul's referring to what, of course, he had taught them over there when he was there. The Word, you see, enables a believer to stand and be stable. The Word brings consolation and comfort. The Word and work are interrelated. The study of the Word will lead to the work of the Lord. Listen to Paul now here, verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good Word and work. Now, he's to comfort your hearts. The Word of God will comfort you, and it will edify you. That is the important thing. And if you're edified, it'll bring comfort to you. And establish you means you'll get rooted and grounded in the Word of God. You won't be carried away by every wind of doctrine. You won't be going out after every fad today and reading every new book that comes from the press today that plays up something of the moment that people are interested in. And you won't have to be running all the time to these little study courses where you take sort of a course. It's sort of like taking an aspirin tablet or maybe taking Geritol or something like that to sort of build you up, you see, for the moment. We need to be established in the faith. Now, friends, this is very important. You see, the Word of God is therefore that which will lead you to do the work of God. Now we're going to see in chapter 3 that believers can be established in their walk. And the walk is your life before the world. And the believer needs to be established in his work down here. You see, today... 
it's rather deceitful, and you deceive yourself and others when you talk about how much you love the coming of the Lord, and you don't study His Word. And it doesn't manifest itself in your life. And it doesn't make you work. You see, if you really believe Christ is coming, you're really going to be busy. You're going to work for Him because you're going to give an account to Him. And if He's going to be here tomorrow, I want to be busy today. And you won't have your nose pressed against the window looking for Him to come or always looking up into heaven. You're going to be looking around you doing the work of the Lord down here. That's the greatest proof that you believe in His coming. 